Listener Production. This podcast was recorded on the ancient lands of the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation in Australia. I wish to acknowledge their rich and continuing culture and especially pay respect to the elders past, present and emerging and to acknowledge and pay respect to any First Nations people from anywhere in the world who may come to hear this podcast. We hope that we may all come to walk with gentle feet, strong minds and compassionate hearts in this global village. No dad wants to be a lousy dad. Aiming to be a good dad is great, but you know what? Being a good enough dad is so much more important. I'm Maggie Dent, parenting educator and author and champion of boys and men. And this is The Good Enough Dad, where I chat with committed, caring, sometimes confused and often funny dads about all the ways they've discovered to be good enough at this parenting gig. My good enough dad today is Adam Liao. The food you put on the plate tastes delicious, but it's also got heart, it's got soul, and it's got mind behind it. That is really rare. That intellect will make you very unique in this industry. We're so delighted, we're so excited that you are the Master Chef for 2010. Well done. Oh, I saw that on your face. That's oh. Adam winning season two of Master Chef in 2010. <laughs> Would you believe that was 14 years ago? Yeah, it feels like a lifetime ago. So since winning MasterChef, Adam has become one of Australia's most popular cooks, turning his hand to TV presenting, cookbook writing and podcasting. He's also an ambassador for UNICEF Australia. Oh, that man is busy. But while he has many balls in the air, Adam still shows his love for his family by cooking for them every night or nearly every night. Adam has three children with his wife, Asami, Christopher, 10... Anna, seven, and Benji, four. Adam, welcome to The Good Enough Dad. Thank you so much for having me, Maggie. <laughs> you still cook every night for your family. Are you the best cook in the house or uh, is is food your love language? <laughs> well, it's definitely my love language. Um, I don't think that, well, you know, if you ask my children, no, I am not the best cook in the oh. house. Like, it is my own personal shame that they prefer my wife's cooking <laughs> over mine. In my, you know, with the, she... she she hits the, the kids' favourite dishes again and again and again. My daughter, actually this morning, she had Japanese-style tomato curry for breakfast, which she also had for dinner last night, <laughs> lunch yesterday, <laughs> breakfast the day before, and dinner the night before. This is a fifth consecutive meal of my wife's tomato curry. You can be damn good curry. I might have to get the recipe I did have a one. spoon this morning. It, it, was, uh, it was good, actually. You moved to... Adelaide from Penang in Malaysia at three years of age. Can you remember that transition at all? I, I often think when you try to recall those very early childhood memories, I wonder if they're the real memories of the three-year-old or maybe they're the memories of a 10-year-old looking at a picture of when you were three years old. And I always try and, I try and turn the image around in my mind, like, you know, I can see the thing that I remember from the picture. Can I see what's on the other side that I would have been looking at? And usually I can't. So I don't, you know, we're, we're talking 40 years ago now, so I'm not 100% <laughs> sure. But, you know, I, I think I have definite childhood memories of the transition, whether or not they're the actual ones from the actual time or just recollections, memories of memories, I guess. Both your parents were hardworking doctors. So I understand your grandmother was a big part of your life. Can you tell me a little about her? Yeah, she migrated to Australia with us. So when my parents were both working, she was the one that was basically looking after the kids and she lived with us at the same time. She was a very, very, she passed away about four years ago, a very strong woman. She never went to school. She didn't have an education. She 
used to tell a story where she would uh, have to take her much younger brother. She had a brother who was about 15 years younger than her, I think. And she used to have to take him to school because only the boys went to school. And she would drop him off at school and then run around the back of the school building and listen into the classes while he was getting taught so she could get an education. She ended up speaking, you know, she could speak eight languages and she was a very, very clever woman. And quite good in the kitchen, I think. Very good cook too. You know, I mean, that was in her time, that was her job. Her husband passed away when she was very young, about 25. Wow. And, and she had three children. At that time, they had no money. Her job at the time was she was a washerwoman. She did laundry at one of the rest houses in, in Malaysia. Uh, the rest houses were sort of these colonial era small hotels, I guess. And my grandfather was the cook there and she did the house cleaning and things like that. And when he passed away, she really didn't have enough money to raise children. And she actually won in like the Malaysian equivalent of, of Cross Lotto. Not a big amount of money, probably about $5,000 in today's money, but it was completely life-changing. It allowed her to uh, rent a little cafe that she then ran. And because then she had premises, she ended up looking after all of her brother-in-law's children as well. So she was this one woman looking after about, I think it was 11 children uh, while running a cafe at the same time. Oh my goodness. What a powerhouse. <laughs> yeah, woman. incredible woman. She and really do you was. remember coming alongside her while she was cooking, would she hand you the knife to chop stuff up or would she, you just witnessed her amazing efforts? Yeah, it was It was a lot of wash, watching. <laughs> Um, a lot of washing up. <laughs> washing and watching, yeah. Uh, she didn't really kind of like, come and cook with mm, me. It wasn't mm. like, you know, hold the spoons yeah. to like you might see in a Christmas movie or something like that. Yes. It was, And I say it was work in the sense that, you know, she wasn't doing it for fun. She was doing it in order to feed quite a lot of mouths all the time. But that's not to say there wasn't love in it. You know, there was, there was an, a huge amount of culture and love into what she did, but it wasn't like, oh, come on, let's all cook together and have a good time. There was, there was none of that. Your parents separated when you were around eight and your mum went to live in New Zealand mm. a little bit later on. Now, tell me about this big decision around the age of 14, because I'm very impressed about this, that you chose to live where and with who? Uh, well, I was... <laughs> At that stage in South Australia where I was living, it was sort of a two-year matriculation. So mm. I was in my second year 11, second to last year, year of school at that stage because I jumped through school a bit quicker. Tell me about that. Is that well, you worked harder or you're incredibly <laughs> clever? Come on. Uh, they, they, it's so they, easy to skip grades. Yeah, they, they, they just put me in a bit early. My, my brother is, you know, the the kind of genius that you would make movies about kind oh, of thing. He's okay. a very, very, very smart cookie. And I kind of rode on the coattails there a little <laughs> bit. So he went into school when he was, I think, just starting year one at about three and then yeah. skipped some grades. So he finished school when he was 14. They kind of just let me go in yeah, earlier as well. On. I mean, <laughs> I didn't skip any grades after that. I skipped yeah. the first one, but that was it. I just went through earlier earlier and a little bit faster. So at that stage, I, it was either change schools for my last two years of school or stay at the same school. Uh, so we stayed at the same one. My brother was already in uni at the time. Uh, so we went and basically moved out by ourselves, not completely alone. My grandmother at that stage was sort of spending six months in Australia, six months in Malaysia. Um, and so, you know, she would look after us for that six months and then for six months of the year we'd be on our own. Mm. 
I'm just impressed with that maturity. And I think I, I have to celebrate that because so often we hear and from all my surveys I've done for writing my books, the boys keep saying we always seen in such a negative light as though we're just useless and hopeless. And I know I've met many young lads in that age group who are doing exceptional things quietly behind the scenes. And I just wanted to shine a little light on that <laughs> to say, make sure you share that story a little bit more. Well, I, I kind of do think about that time sometimes and go, oh, God, because I, I remember I was I w- was working at McDonald's, but because I was in year 11 and 14, the only kind of shift I could get was midnight to 6 a.m. <sighs> and my brother had a driver's license. I obviously didn't, but I would drive his car to work at midnight, <laughs> 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 work for six hours overnight at McDonald's, then drive home at 6.30 in the morning and get ready and go to school. Go it was school. A, kind of a... Not a great lifestyle. No, I know. <laughs> I find that then that there's this pragmatism often in boys and men yeah. um, where that's what needed to happen, so I just step up and do it. Mm. Whereas today I think we've got a lot of boys on couches who can't launch because the motivation for you was not only to complete something that was of value in your family, but also you were the one who was able to either create it or explode it. Yeah. And you can grow up faster. The neuroplasticity of the human brain, <laughs> you can grow up faster. I should probably correct it. I, I think I was 16. At yeah. that time. I don't think they let 14-year-olds work midnight to 6 a.m. <laughs> that sounds illegal <laughs> well, when you say it out loud. It sound, either way, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. So as a former high school teacher, I'm a little bit curious as to how was it you being younger in a higher grade, was was that a difficult journey with students uh, rather than, because it's unusual? <laughs> uh, not really for me. I went to the same school from start to finish. So, uh, and it was, you know, one of those schools where, you know, you have di- different people coming in. So, so I was kind of there from the beginning. So there was no need for me to acclimatize to a yeah. new school or anything like that, which made life a lot easier. And I, I I was funny. So I I think, and, you know, whether a a sense of humour developed because, (laughs) because, you know, you had to find a way to to fit in and stuff because, you know, when you're two, three years younger than every other kid, it's, you you can't play a lot of sport and at an all boys school, sport's very important. And I was quite sporty, but just dramatically smaller than all the other children. (laughs) So I had, I had lots of friends. I was quite popular at school. So one of the best defences against bullying and not fitting in is definitely a sense of humour. It's a yeah. protective factor in terms of resilience. So well done. Pick that <laughs> up. Good. But you could, could have probably been a comedian, not a cook. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of Asian kids who I, I think, you know, I was one of, at that stage, you know, these days would be very different, but I was one of two Asian kids in the school at the beginning. Ah, so, and so very different as well. Yeah, a, a really different thing. And you do find a lot of intelligent... If you look at an Asian comedian of my vintage these days, you'll often find they were one lawyers. of very... Yeah, <laughs> lawyer, lawyers. Uh, <laughs> that were one of very few Asian kids in the school had to develop a sense of humour yeah. as a... Coping guess, mechanism. Yeah, I love it. Where was your dad in all of this and and who was the biggest adult influence in you during that stage of transition from boy to man? Uh, My dad lived in the country about four hours out of Adelaide in Wyala and so he would actually work 
the weekdays there and then come back on the weekend. So there was more kind of supervision. He, he'd actually phone us every night. We'd talk for about an hour pretty much every single night. And I remember, it was, you know, this was the days before mobile yes. phones and stuff and, you know, I'd have half an hour on the phone with my dad and then call out to my brother and he'd come downstairs and, and get on the phone for half an hour to dad and that kind of thing. That's pretty special. Um, and then he would be there on the weekends uh, every weekend, pretty much every weekend. I can't actually I can't even think of one he would have missed, maybe maybe one when he was on call at the hospital there. Yeah, That's and, probably and, more connection than a lot of dads who live in the same house as their sons. Yeah, potentially. Do you so. know what I mean? You know, finding an hour to chat with your yeah. kids every day is, uh, you know, maybe I should move out of home and call, call my <laughs> call my kids rather than. Well, now you do all the FaceTime, <laughs> Zoom, Skypes, and everything. You can see their face. You graduated with a degree in science and law, and then how old were you when you moved to Tokyo to practice law? I think I was twenty-three. So I graduated at about when I was 20 and then I worked for three or four years at law firms and then moved to Tokyo when I was 23. Yeah. And that's where you met your wife, uh, Sami there. How did that happen? We worked at the same company. (laughs) (laughs) Not on Tinder. Great. No, no. (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah, we just got along well and, um, yeah, office romance, I guess. I love it. Okay. So there's a big leap though from a lawyer to master chef and a cook. So you've said before that entering that was an uncharacteristic risk. So have you always played it safe or just predictable or or rational thinking and then all of a sudden that's not rational? Tell me about how did that happen? Very, very much so. I, I am not a risk taker, I guess. You know, when you, when you grow up in a, I guess, a migrant family, the goal is... I think from a very early age, you're sort of brought up to understand that the goal is stability. And so stability genuinely means getting the best or highest paying, I should say, not best, highest paying Mm -hmm. job you can, and then working in that forever. Yeah, that's exactly Um, it. And, you know, now that I am an adult, I kind of realise how important stability is when you don't have it. You know, know, my grandmother was through wars and uh, lived through wars and my um, parents migrated and stability is a a wonderful thing when you have it. When you when you have it, you also don't realise how terrible life can be when you don't have it. Yeah. Um, so we were very, very much uh, focused on stability and reliability. And so I'd been working in Japan for about eight years at that time and I was kind of looking to come back to Australia and I'd never had time off. I hadn't taken, I remember from my last law exam to starting my first job in a law firm, I had, I think, three days <laughs> off and that was it. And yeah. even when I moved to Japan, I was saying, I, I sort of said, can I have a month off leaving my job and then moved to Japan? And they were like, mm, no, you could have the weekend. <laughs> so I finished work at one law firm on the Friday and started my job at Disney in Tokyo on the Monday, living out of a hotel for three months and things. Were you happy as a lawyer? Were you kind of? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I loved my job. <laughs> and yet you didn't know this other thing yeah. could happen. So uh, it, it still seems like, um, like, did it drop in and then the idea appear in the middle of the night or did somebody suggest it? How did you actually get to go putting in an application for MasterChef? Well, I, 
Um, or was it your beautiful I, wife? No, <laughs> I'd never seen the show. Like, ah. uh, uh, and you know, we weren't in Australia at the time, no. and it was uh, I was in the second season, so there'd been one season, and I remember my friends who knew I loved to cook because when I was a lawyer, I used to have dinner parties sort of three times a week kind of thing. Oh. And uh, they knew I loved to cook and they said, oh, this show, it's, it's so popular in Australia. Everybody's watching it. You'd love it. You should put in an application. My friend, who was also a lawyer that I'd worked with in Tokyo, sent me the application form as kind of a joke. Yeah. And then that at that point, it was just after the global financial crisis, 2009. Yeah. And so in Asia for American companies – the economic situation was such that there was not a lot of optimism or new projects happening. So I was pretty quiet at work. I wasn't in danger of losing my job or anything. So I just, you know, when he sent me the, the link on email, I was just like, oh, I'll just fill in the application. Yeah, and then okay. <laughs> I remember I was in Cuba actually on holiday with my then girlfriend, now wife. Yeah. And I got an email saying, do you want to come to Sydney next weekend for an audition? I was like, no, what are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on holiday. Yeah. And so I just said no. And then, um, then they emailed back about three weeks later when I was back in Tokyo saying, actually, we'd really like you to come to an audition. There's a second round of auditions this weekend. And I was like, I can't go to Sydney this weekend. But then that was actually Jetstar had just started flying direct direct Tokyo to Sydney. And it was a long weekend in Tokyo. And because they just started flying, the the return flight was $300 <laughs> from Tokyo. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to go yeah, see my friends. I'm going to go see my friends in Sydney. And if I have time, I'll pop into this audition. And then when I went to the audition, it was just a huge amount of fun. You yeah. know, it was it was really great fun. Yeah. And then I ended up coming back for the you next sure one and the next did. one and the next one after that. Oh, so good. Now, you know, that need you explained just before about the safety and security. Yeah. Do you feel that when you became a dad, that was still really deeply embedded in you? Or does it bother you as much now that you've matured and done different stuff in your life and had... Taken some risks. It still bothers me. I, I guess, you know, I have, I've been effectively self-employed now for 14 years, 15 nearly. And I think when you make that leap from getting a regular salary to not, you do have to have a little bit more tolerance for um, <laughs> a lack of security, particularly, you know, when, when, when COVID hit, I remember. Yeah. And this is kind of evidence that it is not completely out of my system. I had nine months of work planned that yep. went away in a week yep. and a half, you know? Me and too. I remember it was just terrifying at that time. Going, oh, okay. Off a cliff. What is my job now? <laughs> what is my work for the next year? And, um, you know, we thankfully, I transitioned from doing travel shows, which I've been doing for a decade previous to that, to doing uh, The Cook Up, which is now the, yeah. the show that I do mainly in studio. So there were there were lots of things that we were able to to make work. So I'm, I guess I'm more resilient to a lack of stability than yeah. I than I would have been yeah. in the past. Yeah, I like that. Now your work obviously involves a lot of travel. You certainly get to some places in the world, so that can be a blessing and a bit of a curse. How do you juggle the demands of work with being the dad you really want to be, and still doing the work that you also <laughs> want to do? Uh, do you I, have hour-long phone calls too? Not really. <laughs> I think, you know, I was reading the other day, attention spans have dropped by 33% over the last 15 years. And I'm like, oh, is it only 33%? <laughs> I, I um, uh, yeah, I, I 
thankfully now, the main show that I do when we're filming, which is we film about eight months, six, six, seven months of the year, is done in studio five minutes from my house. So I am home for dinner every single night. I'm usually not there for breakfast because I leave very early in the morning, but uh, at least I'm home every day. I still do make travel shows now, so I'm on the road a lot, but travel has become a lot easier, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't do the big, long three months overseas like I used to when before the kids were born or even when they were very, very little and wouldn't notice that I was gone. (laughs) So I try to avoid that now, and I I, I like being home. You know, I I think... People spend so much time at home that travel is seen as being something desirable because they only do it when they go on holiday and stuff. But when you work on the road, you dream about being at home. That's it. That's (laughs) me. I was just saying to my dad, uh, we were just arranging our Chinese New Year plans. I was on the phone to him yesterday and I was like, I'm going to bring the kids down and I've got to go to Canberra on the Thursday. I'll bring them over to Adelaide on the Friday. Then I've got to go to Gold Coast on the Saturday for work and then I'll come back on Sunday, pick him up in Adelaide and go back to Sydney so I can be back at school on Monday. He was like, you can't do that. I was like, I'll do it every week, Dad. Don't worry yeah, about it. Yeah. We all know that as parents we try to do our very best, but we all, we all have muck-up moments. Can you share one of your parenting fails, please? Ah. Uh, how long have you got? You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, it took me a long time to realise that when I am angry with my children, it usually is not their fault. Absolutely. Did you say that again? Because that <laughs> is I, just pure gold. Yeah. When I'm angry with my children, it's usually not their fault. Sometimes, you know, yeah. they can, <laughs> they can, they can push the, the the right buttons to do that. But it's usually because I'm sad or because I'm tired or I'm angry in the same way that, you know, I think kids biologically, 99% of the problems they have is just, are you, are you hungry, tired or, yeah. or thirsty? You know, which, Unmet which, need. <laughs> which is the thing that you need now and we'll fix that and then we'll solve all the emotional Multiple things Multiple unmet later. needs get yeah. tricky, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes I, I'll find myself and I, I, my parents never yelled and so I see yelling as being something. We, we, my wife and I are very, very different. We are, I would like to say, compatible personalities that are like two jigsaw puzzles that have nothing in common that fit together yeah. quite well. And so, you know, she grew up in a family where, you know, there was a lot of yelling. But some families are just like that. They're you know, loud. They're, some are very They're loud. loud families. We were a very, very quiet family. Yeah. I can't remember anyone ever yelling in my entire childhood <laughs> at all. And sometimes you get in these in our house where we're yelling. I'm like, where did this come from? I'm like, oh, it's my wife's fault. <laughs> but it's also, you know, I I had in the early stages of our relationship a real aversion to yelling. Yeah, and I still don't think it's well, great. No, it would probably trigger you because it's yeah. so unfamiliar. It was really unfamiliar to me, and so sometimes just the 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 tone or the tenor of a conversation when you know you. you my wife's yelling at the kids and they're yelling back at her, and then I'm like, I'm not a yeller, but I guess I've got to get into this whole yelling thing. Sometimes I find myself speaking very harshly to my children to a level that is not either effective, fair, or that has nothing to do with them at all. And I used to be pretty stubborn about that, you know, and I would be like, well, actually, it is your fault. You know, it's not me. It's, it is you. But I, I now, thankfully, uh, apologize a lot. Yeah. If that happens, I, I'm very careful to sit them down and go, look, you know, I yelled at you. That was not fair. That was my fault. Won't do it again. Yeah, it's the well, I won't, not 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 won't do it again. But I just wanted to say that I 
acknowledge that that was not right. It's the rupture that is followed by repair, yeah. which is comes from awareness. Come on, tell me something really specific you've done that was an obvious muck-up, except speaking harshly, because I think lots of us can recognise that one. I don't, you know, like, I don't think I get it too far. I remember when my oldest son was rock climbing and I really wanted him to get to the top of this yeah. thing and I was just, I was pushing him and pushing him and pushing him and I, he wasn't enjoying it. And then he finally got to the top and he's like, are you happy now, Dad? But he was saying it in this like real pleading way. I was like, oh, God, I'm yeah. so, I've done that so badly. <laughs> oh, so that one is a biggie, like the whole yeah. parental approval, the pressure that we, mm. you know, it is really hard because we're not doing it for a, a negative reason because mm. sometimes kids need a little bit of coaching and pushing. Yeah, yeah. But what I see later is the the kids who don't feel unconditionally loved, that they feel they get love when they perform. Mm. But you saw that in that moment and uh Yeah, that was I mean that was a good five, six years yeah. ago now. So yeah. um Yeah. Learn, learning moments for me is that, that and the oldest child I think always gets it a bit harder because, you know, I'm just, we're just not we're not used to it. We we need to learn how to be parents, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the ill played. <laughs> So your parents brought you to a new country to give you more opportunities. Perhaps they were also afraid that you would not have enough opportunities if they'd stayed where they were. So what fears do you have for your own children today here in Australia? God, um, economic, I guess. You know, uh, to me, they have a lifestyle so far in excess of what I had growing up or what my parents or grandparents had growing up. You know, my family for 700 years were farmers in the same village. And then my grandfather went to Malaysia. My dad came to Australia and, and our lifestyle could not be more different. You know, we've been back to the village since and my kids have been there too. And I'll just go, well, you know, imagine if my grandfather had never gone to Malaysia and my dad had never come to Australia, we'd be living in, in that house there. We still have our house there and it's it's not even a house anymore. It's sort of ramshackle kind of fallen to bits, but it's, you know, it's about about the size of this studio, I guess. Yeah. And I guess, you know, in some ways, the lifestyle that we're able to live now is the goal, you know, I own my own house, you mm -hmm. know, the, we're not going to starve at any point soon, but I, I still find myself thinking, will my kids own a house when, yeah. when they grow up, you know, that they'll have a good education, I hope. But I, I, I do think still very much in that those practical migrant family terms of where is the stability that that they're going to have in their in their lives. Now that fear that you have around financial security, um, especially in today's world, is such a common concern mm. for parents. But I'm just going to throw something in here that I work around the other end of kids who don't cope and the kids who are struggling and our teens who are struggling, and I'm going to say they're emotional capacity and their mental capacity is far more important in terms of how they're going to thrive through life. Mm. We are finding so many kids who are struggling to complete high school, not because they're not bright enough or don't live in a nice house, but they're struggling with all these pressures of living today mm. that are not giving them the sense of hope that I believe we want for our kids. So I think one of those big messages is absolutely we want to give them the tools to be able yeah. to generate the financial freedom to make the choices they want, 
But that can be okay if they also want to, you know, have a career that isn't up the top of the tree. If they yeah. want to be a chef and not a lawyer, <laughs> if they want to be um, a teacher, they want to be, a, um, you know, someone who works in retail, whatever your place is, we want to make sure they're able to do something they enjoy doing that actually allows what I call their innate strengths to come out and to have enough to create a life of comfort. It may not mean you will own your house in the yeah. northern beaches of Sydney. <laughs> but can you see that's a that's one of the things I want us to be more concerned about is my child happy to be who they are as well as giving them the tools to navigate a very unpredictable world. Yeah, I, I, I do. You know, I went to school with a lot of rich kids. My, my parents are both doctors, but we came to Australia with nothing and they went through a divorce. And so we we really didn't have a lot growing up. And I went to school on scholarship, otherwise we'd never been able to afford the school that my brother and I went to. And I just remember looking at all the kids at school who their parents had wealth that I would never have imagined. All, all through my childhood, I slept in the garage with my brothers, with my brothers, and it wasn't even, it wasn't like a nice redone <laughs> garage. It was a literal garage. And then you go to kids' houses and they've got like, you know, swimming pools and tennis courts. En suites and, that are bigger yeah. than most people's bathrooms. I was yeah. like, can you imagine like yeah. how easy your life would be if you had this amount of money? I, I always remember thinking that. And, um, it, or, you know, if you had a fridge that made its own ice, <laughs> yeah, those kind of things. And, and, you know, that kind of stability is something that, you know, it, and it wasn't about being rich or, you know, right. or anything like that. It was just imagine not having to worry about yeah. if you can afford your school uniform. That was what I was thinking. Yeah, exactly. All right, so it's your chance to brag a little now, Adam, and celebrate. What do you reckon is some of your finest moments as a dad with your kids? I think I support them very well in what they want to do. And, and I'm always very kind of aware of the extraordinary amount of projection <laughs> that is kind of hardwired into the way parents parent. You are... Uh, in some biological way, trying to create a second version of yourself that is better than the first. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Rather right. than allowing an actual human being to develop in a way that exactly. is right for them. And yeah. so I'm able to catch it very early on, you know, when I'm kind of pushing them to do something that is not for them but for me. And so I don't do that anymore, you know. I think... I've thankfully managed to stamp that out before they've reached their teenage years because I think that's when it can be a, a little bit. I, I do sometimes think, you know, what kind of teenagers are they going to be? Because I, my wife was a rebellious teen. I was <laughs> the opposite. You know, yep. I, I was um, uh, very you skipped well. skipped the teenage years technically, <laughs> just went straight yeah, into manhood, yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> so there wasn't any kind of like raging against or yeah. authority for me. Yeah. And, well, there wasn't a huge amount of authority for me to rage against, to be honest. We were living, I was living by myself at 14, so um, it, it wasn't, if I, could, if I wanted to go out at night, I could go out at night, and I just never did. <laughs> You're not very good at celebrating yourself, really, Adam, I feel. I think that there's probably some exceptionally wonderful moments that you've created with your kids, particularly, you know, around your food and around feeding each other and around the kitchen bench and the table, yeah, yeah. I mean, th that is that is one of the really important things for me, eating together as a family. 
not just because I like food, no. but because it's got nothing to do with the food, to be honest. And I never will force them to eat anything. And, and yeah. one of the things that I really like about our meal times is I don't mind cooking. So if if we sit down, like, and this has happened at times, we'll sit down at the table and the kids will be like, I don't want to eat that. And I'm like, okay, no worries. What, what else? And then they'll like snack on a few things and I'll just go and make something else and then come back to the table, which is, I guess, a situation that not many people find themselves in. And they, that, that would usually turn into a fight. You know, you need to sit, you're going to sit there and eat it until I've just worked on that for so long. And so I, while I have pride in my food, I also, you know, I don't force them to eat anything. Yeah. And I think we underestimate that food's so much more about human connectedness. Yeah. We gather around food as humans. Yes. And culturally, that's what your family would have done right back in that original village. Well, we, you know, food throughout the human history has been what culture is about. Exactly. You know, every single celebration that we have comes from an ancient harvest festival yes. that's been translated exactly. into something else over, over times. And, and so I, I, in the era of industrial food and processed food, sometimes we see that act of cooking a meal and sitting down to it as being... I don't know, yeah. a, a luxury or or something, but I I think it is absolutely necessary. Yeah. You know, otherwise I, I kind of think like, and I don't say this to knock people. I ate most of my meals because I because I was living by myself or with my brother for so long. I reckon most of the meals in my teenage years were eaten in front of the TV yeah. by myself, and then we'd all get together for a family dinner on Sunday when my dad was in town or whatever. But I don't know when you would have time to talk to your children if you didn't sit down to a meal. We actually, my, my kids really enjoy playing like word games at dinner and I've had to kind of suggest that we don't do it all the time because we end up <laughs> playing these word games over dinner. I'm like, well, I, actually, I, I'm here for a reason. I need to find out what you guys did today and, you know, what was what was nice, what went wrong, yeah. who did you play with at kindy or whatever, you know, and, and, and it's the only time I really get. It's to, to talk to them, gold, to find out it? about their life. So one yeah. of the researchers I read at one point explains that we have emotional memories that are linked to smell. Mm. Now, I'm a farmer's daughter and my yep. mum was an amazing baker. And so for me, the smell of certain soups cooking or apple pie cooking or a roast lamb, because we yep. had sheep, triggers pure endorphins. And it is one of those things I sort of, with busy parents, I keep saying, please, even if you're not a cook, mm. create something that you do fairly regularly because you're going to create memories that go instantly yeah. into your endorphin system, whether it's a fry up egg and bacon on a weekend or, you know, you just do whatever, popcorn with movies. The link yeah. goes far deeper. I, I mean, I grew up in a family cook, so I, when you say that, I can immediately think of all the smells in my grandma's <laughs> yes! kitchen. But if you didn't grow up in a family cook, you can still no. understand it when you think about opening a book that you read as a child and yep. you smell the pages of that book and it has a very distinctive kind of distinctive. memory connection. And I want to go back one little step to that. You know, you, I'm a bit worried, what are they going to be like as teenagers? So one of the things that dads have said to me a lot is that they can find it being a dad up to the teenage years. It's not you know, it's 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 actually a lot better than they thought it would once they sleep. But when they get into those teen years and pull away and start being their own person and stuff, it often triggers dads mm. to get really angry because they don't want them to muck up how they did, which is kind of like a little bit unfair because that's part of the growth and the journey. But it's one thing I know we need to be mindful. If you start really getting, and they're often harder on their sons. 
yeah. than they are on their daughters for that very reason. So it's a it's an interesting shift. It may have coming, but it may not even happen. <laughs> Actually, I do I do have a win. One one yes. thing that I'm proud oh, great. of. Uh, and it was just the other week. I, rem- I remember it now. We, we've just gotten back from kind of a skiing holiday, and I I took my three children out for a day without my wife. Give give her a bit of a break. She went into town, did some shopping and picked up some things she needed to do. And so I was there with the three kids. We'd been skiing for a while at that point. So even before they got on the slopes, they were very tired and it was a blizzard and it was cold. And we got to the point where, you know, all the kids were just melting down. and (laughs) The trio. Yeah. And it was just, oh, know, what are we going to do? Do I just give up now? Do we take him home? And and my son asked me, going, I said, let's do one more run. And if we're still as we are, then let, let's just call it because this is not going to work for any of us. And um, we were going up the gondola on the way back up and my son was like, Dad, do you think we can turn this around? And I was like, oh, yeah, I think we can. And we did. That's so. great. That is exactly it. Do you reckon we can turn this around? If there's only one thing that you want your three kids to have learnt from you because they have you as their dad, what is the one thing? Ooh, uh, kindness, I would say. Yeah, I I think it's important for them to be kind. Beautiful. And your final question, if you could wind back the clock and go back to Adam before he became a dad, what advice would you give to him? Oh, God. (laughs) <laughs> uh, God, what is it? Um, and you can even see in the answers that I've given you today that I'm still not, I've not learned this. Like it's not, it's not just about what they're going to become in the future. I think that's, that to me is kind of an important part. Like I, I often, I remember when, when the kids are young, it's kind of like, oh, you know, what's their personality? What are they going to turn into? And you're trying to extrapolate this adult from a, nine-month-old baby sometimes, and it's just like, what a ridiculous thing to think about. And I remember my grandma, who was obviously a very good, she was a very good mother and very good grandmother. I'd say, I'd say to her, you know, I think, you know, such and such kid's got a got a real mean streak or, or something because he's, you know, pulled his sister's hair or, or something like that. And she's like, what are you talking about, you idiot? Like, you know, that, that's not, that's, He's a very good kid. Like he, she's seen enough kids and seen enough kids grow up to know that all of these tiny little things that we might fixate on as parents are, are, are usually not a big problem. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that we really need to surround them with that presence of significant, loving, yeah. caring humans who can accept whatever turns up some days. Mm whether it's the spectacular poo or it's the moment of the meltdown <laughs> out in public, that this is exactly what children do to grow, to be able to navigate yeah. the world around them, provided they can land on a safe base at the end. Sure. Adam, thank you. Thank you for our chat. Thanks, Maggie. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> Adam Liao, cook, TV presenter, writer, ambassador for UNICEF Australia. Adam has some great ideas on how to be a good enough dad. So let's add them to our checklist. Firstly, when you're really angry at kids, it's probably not your kid's fault. It's probably your anger. Secondly, 
don't underestimate the power of family meals together. Yep, you don't have to cook like Adam. And yeah, they don't always have to eat it. But let's get in that habit of human connectedness over food. And thirdly, avoid predicting or aiming to predict what your kids will do in their life. Just surround them with love and allow them to grow up to be whoever they're meant to be. I'm Maggie Dent and this is The Good Enough Dad. Follow us on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts.